He looks determined without being ruthless. Something heroic in his manner. There's a courage about him. Comes across so calm. Acts like he has a dream. Full of passion. You don't trust me, huh? Well, you know why. I do. We're not supposed to trust anyone in our profession anyway. As athletes, we've grown to have thick skin. But just imagine everybody believing something about you that isn't true. Welcome to the rematch. I remember watching John Wallace in 1996 while I was in high school and already committed to Syracuse University. I was sitting in the cafeteria at Booker T. Washington High School uh, during lunchtime and talking noise nonstop. See, all of Oklahoma was still mad at me for not following in the footsteps of the great Wayman Tisdale, who also went to my high school and went to Oklahoma University. They actually booed me at the Hall State game when they announced that I was going to Syracuse. So I was talking noise nonstop as Syracuse made this epic run in 1996. Syracuse really beat some great teams that tournament, like Georgia, Kansas, Mississippi State. You know, on their way to the championship game against Kentucky. And they weren't really supposed to uh, go that far. They struggled in the beginning of the season. And I remember them even not being sure if they was going to make the tournament. So they really wasn't a favorite in the NCAA tournament. But then, you know, game after game, they were winning and winning some more. And I remember their 83-81 win over Georgia in the Sweet 16. And, you know, so they're in overtime, right? And Georgia hit a three-pointer to take an 81-80 to lead with, like, five seconds to go. And then Syracuse inbounded the ball. And John Wallace dribbled over half court and launched, like, a three from, the like, the top of the key. And the shot went in, and the crowd went crazy, and I'm going crazy in my high school cafeteria and high-fiving, like, my, my boys, like, Scooter and Robin and Z, and we're all, you know, having a great time. And then after that, they beat Kansas to go to the Final Four, and that that's when I saw the whole team, John Wallace, Otis Hill, Lazara Sims, the whole team all dancing around in the post-game interview. God, God, Amy is in the house, oh my God, danger. And that's where that whole thing birthed. Right. But John Wallace really put them on his back and said, you know, we are not going to lose. And they called him buckets because he could get buckets. I mean, he was six, nine and could pretty much do it all. And they just went through the tournament winning game after game. And it was absolutely magical. But then I remember watching the NBA draft that year and seeing John Wallace slip in the draft. I wanted to ask him what happened and why he slipped. I want to ask him about the, the negative stigma surrounding him personally and Syracuse players as a whole and where that came from. You know, I saw firsthand how much he did in the community and how much, you know, he does with young people and how he uses some of the mistakes that he made in his life growing up to really guide young people the right way. And he's been doing this pretty much since college. So. I know I'm a little biased, but I wanted him to tell his side of the story so you hear it straight from the horse's mouth. So this episode is really for my Syracuse fans, the bleed orange, true Syracuse fans. You know, somebody might be thinking, you know, why John Wallace? Well, John Wallace is a Syracuse legend. 
And I got a lot of love for Syracuse, so I'm going to bring a fellow Syracuse legend on the show to be able to tell his story. I have to give proper respect when I introduce John Wallace. So let me just say this. When the Cuse is in the house, oh my God, God. When the Cuse is in the house, oh my God. Danger! Syracuse legend John Wallace is a graduate of Greece Athena High School in Rochester, New York. He led Syracuse University to the NCAA Men's College Basketball Championship game during his senior year in 1996 against a loaded Kentucky Wildcats team. Surprisingly, he was selected 18th in the NBA draft by the Knicks and is currently an executive board member of Heavenly Productions Foundation, a 501c3 charity based in New York, whose mission is to help children in need and in distress. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. John Wallace. How you doing, J-Dub? Wow, Etan, I got to have you uh, making all my intros around the city, man. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I'm the baddest man in the world right now. Man. Thank you. Thank you, my brother. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you for doing this interview with the Players' Tribune. You know, I was in high school watching that epic run in the tournament uh, where you just carried the team on your back. And shout out to Otis Hill and Lazarus Sims and Jason Sapola and Todd Bergen. Uh, but you really put the team like on your back. Take me back to that magic and that experience. Well, first off, man, um, starting off that season, nobody had us to, uh, pick to do anything. We weren't, we weren't in the top 25. We, we weren't really even in the top 40 at, at the beginning of the season. So I took that as, you know, I took that very personal. And uh, what I started doing that summer was having all the guys come to my house, starting to build that camaraderie. Uh, if, if you're a cohesive unit off the court, you become more cohesive on the court. So we started working on that and knowing knowing that, like, this is your last, this is it for myself and Lazarus. So I was like, you know, I wanted to go out with a bang. I wanted to go out the right way. So that run you know, just a, a beautiful way to end your, uh, end your college basketball career, even though we didn't win a championship game. Just to have that run and still have people talking about it 20 years later, um, it, it's, it's very humbling. It, it's really humbling because I never thought, you know, you know, 20 years later people would still be, you know, coming up to me and talking about the games and, you know, talking about where they were and how, how much it meant to them, how much it meant to – and as you know, Etan, there's no – there's no fan base like the Syracuse fan base. It's real. And, you know, those guys, they know every stat. They know every game. They know where they were on, on certain shots. So, you know, to, to be able to still be a part of that Syracuse lore and the, the, that whole, you know, uh, Syracuse legendary status that we all are a part of now that, you know, not only we had a great career there, but we left our mark. We left an indelible mark, yourself included. We left indelible marks up at Syracuse. And, and the Syracuse fans will always appreciate those marks. You know, the fans are really amazing. We went to the Final Four, um, you know, me, you, and Lawrence Moton, and had an uh, amazing time. And, you know, the fans, they just they show so much of love and so much appreciation. Talk about the, the special fans of Syracuse. I, I, like I said, man, I love it. Uh, I mean, I've been, in, I've been in arenas on the road where, where, where I walk through a group of Syracuse fans and they get, you get 1,000 people just chanting Wallace. And, and 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 that is like it's beyond feeling good, you know. And but like I said, it's very humbling because you know I know we have the best fans in the world, um, and I you know I love our fans just as much as they love me. I bleed orange just like them now because I'm a true fan, 
you know, every every game, you know, we're we're texting, we're going back and forth certain games each time. And I I talked to all the players and I talked to, you know, um it, it's just a special, it's like a cult following for Syracuse. It's not that big. You know, you, you get up there and Syracuse itself as a city is not big. It's a smaller city, but we're strong. Right. And and, and it's real and and, and it's deep rooted pride for, for for the you know, real Cuse fans. Now after your historic run, your special run, um, I remember watching the draft um and saying how on earth is he not being picked yet now that 96 draft will probably go down in history as one of the best drafts ever definitely i mean you have marbury iverson kobe antoine walker Kerry kittles uh steve nash ray allen sharif abdul rahim it was like loaded but even with that and the tournament you had now maybe i have a little syracuse bias i do admit that but i thought that you still should have been drafted higher I think I hurt my own draft status, uh, my draft stock that year. I had a bad workout for the Los Angeles Clippers. Um, got in an argument with Bill Fitch and Elgin Baylor. Uh, I, I, I guess at the time they were trying to test test me, and I guess I failed that test because I want to win and I'm very competitive. And they were just uh, they they were just basically lying to and saying I was losing games I wasn't losing. There was a one on one game. They they changed the score of it, and the guy which I can't remember his name right now, uh, that I was playing one-on-one. He knew the score. He knew I was winning. Um, but he went along with them because, you know, he, you know, whatever. And so I ended up getting a big argument with uh, Bill Fitch and, and Elgin Baylor. And that kind of circulated. And, there, you know, I, got, I was getting a bad rap. And, um, you know, I, I remember when I got drafted by the Knicks and uh, Coach, Coach Van Gundy said to me, I don't care why you slipped. I'm just happy you did, and I hope you're ready to go to work. And I was, I was, you know, ecstatic. So, so from that one workout, it's like they put the word out yep. and really talked bad about you yeah, to all the other really GMs. bad. That's but terrible. you know what? I made up for it, man, because uh, this, my Allen Iverson had the best sneaker deal that year. Stephon Marbury had a nice one, but kind of like third or fourth on that list was myself. I had a I got a uh Carl Canai deal for 750,000. Mm. So because I was in New York, the best right. market. So yeah, I slipped, but it, on the money side, I made up for it. You know, so you know it's all good and I, and it's now it's still paying me for it. I'm working for the Knicks now, so I'm I'm happy that things worked out the way they did. Right, right. Now correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like Syracuse players um they got a bad rap sometimes, especially back in the day. And, you know, there's a question that lingered in the minds of NBA GMs, um, maybe not as much now, but definitely back in the day. Um, Absolutely. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Now, where did that come from and why is that – that was that so prevalent? I think it I think it really stemmed from, you know, the, the zone. Like it came from like us playing a zone, not being able to play man-to-man defense in the NBA – it came. Some of it came from Derek Coleman, and his 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 being surly and you know uh, you know kind of hard to deal with in, in his first couple of years in the NBA. But it doesn't talk about the fact of how good he really is, and how, they always talk about how good he could have been. But I'm like, he was an All Star in the NBA, and he had a long 16 uh, year career. That's in my book, that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, but. You know, and and it, and it, some of it stems from like Coach Beheim is not like this uh, disciplinarian stickler for rules, as you know. So like you you couple all those things together, and some of the GMs are like kind of like, eh, not sure. 
and then some of our guys who they thought were going to pan out um, didn't pan out. So, um, but it, it's definitely starting. To, that perception is starting to change, and as you see, some NBA teams play the zone. So, uh, and, and Coach Behan's been part of the Olympic team with uh, Coach K for you know what twelve years or whatever. So, I mean. I guess in hindsight, they realized that maybe Beheim knew what he was talking about. You know, I always felt that people didn't know you, just knew what they thought of you. Same with Derek Coleman. Um, they don't know all the work that you do in the community and, you know, they have been doing, even while at Syracuse. They don't know the, the passion you have for the youth and why exactly you have that passion. Um, they just don't really know you. Uh, is that something that kind of bothers you, that people don't really know who you really are and all the stuff that you do? No, nah, because the people that need to know me know me. And I, I, I guess, you know, uh, you, you try to put it out there, all the good stuff you're doing, um, you know. But I know people in Syracuse, they know because I've, I've been at Hillsbrook for a couple of years, which is the detention center up in Syracuse, mentoring kids up there. Um, uh, the, the, the city of Syracuse, the city of Rochester, the upstate, you know, city of Buffalo, they all know what we're doing up there. And, uh, you know, and it's not just heavenly productions. My, my thing up there is winning because I tried. And that's my youth mentoring program with my really good friend, Modi Cox. And we've been doing this for eight years up there. We've spoken over 50,000 kids in New York state and Canada. And, uh, you know, it's out there and, um, you know, but me not being a social media person, and me not being like in, in that world at all, I don't, I don't promote it. Uh, you know, but you know, I, I, we're always getting you know requests to come talk to different schools all the time. So people know, and uh, you know, but I, I'm not, I don't know how to promote it because I don't do social media. Yeah. As you know, I've never been on it. I don't even know what it, you know, how to begin <laughs> to get on it. Right, right. Now let, let's go back to a young John Wallace, a, a teenage J Dub. Uh, let's talk Whoa. about who you were and who you are today, because it's important for people to understand the transition and understand why you have this passion. I've heard you say it a lot of times because we've done panel discussions together, but a lot of people don't really know your story and why you have this passion. My my thing was, I was a young kid who was doing dumb stuff for a while. I was stealing cars and doing things that could get you in a lot of trouble, and um this one particular night, the last time I stole a car, uh, my, my cousin and my boy Lamont got caught with a stolen with the stolen car, and I just got out of it. And literally that night, it was like a revelation. It was like God put me on earth for something more than just stealing cars and running, running amok in these streets. And I started practicing that next morning 10 hours every day, like literally, like no matter what happened. And, you know, I, I got my 10 hours in. Every single day. I wasn't that good at basketball. And basketball wasn't my first love. My first love is football. So coming up as a youngster, I, was a, I, I did football and I boxed. Never played basketball. Started First year I played basketball, I was in eighth grade. And Mr. Childs, who I talk to still, he, he's a guy who talked me into playing basketball and paid for me to go to camp. It was, uh, um, and it was, it was a, a life-changing experience for me because I fell in love with basketball and I because I wasn't that good, I really, you know, and being competitive wasn't a good combination, you know, because you, 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 that's a lot of fights. It's a lot of feeling angry all the time. So I just kept working, kept working, kept working. And I went from being one of the worst kids in the neighborhood to, you know, the, the, one of the best players in the country in a literally a three-year span. 
you know, just a, an insane amount of work. It's just like that book Outliers talks about, you know, 10,000 hours of work. I definitely put in 10,000 hours of work. So um, the, for, for people who don't know, you know, like, like you said, with Derek yourself, like it, it's a lot of work you got to put in. It's hard. And, and the minute you, you stop, you know, like that you retire, or, you know, you just feel good that you don't have anything on your agenda that's pertaining to basketball every day. Like it's good to just take that break and get away from it. I don't miss it at all. I live vicariously through my kids. Um, I have five kids, so I have I have enough uh, moments of to, to live vicariously, and um, I'm, I'm just enjoying life, man. I'm a very happy, blessed, fortunate man. And talk to me about how you connect your story when inspiring young people specifically, because I've heard you do it, and I just want you to give our listeners um, a, a, a glimpse into how you actually inspire them. Well, first I tell them, you know, you're one mistake away from ruining your life. Because just like, uh, you know, some of my friends weren't as fortunate as me to get out that stolen car, the ones who got caught in those stolen cars, the ones who got caught with doing other things, who had to do jail time. I mean, I, I always I always think and I always talk to the kids about, like, if I'd have been in that car, how I'd have been like this notorious jail person because I'm so competitive. I'm in jail. I'm locked up. I'd, I'd want to be one of the toughest guys because you got to establish that early, right? So I'm so competitive that I'd want to win at anything. So if I'm in jail, I'm going to try to win at being the toughest guy in jail. And, and it just changes your whole life. I mean, it just changes everything. And it, for some of my friends, they never were able to get out of that rut. They, you know, they, they stay in that valley, so to speak. They, you know, they come up a little bit and they slide right back down. And once you're in that system, man, it's ugly. It's ugly. It's, it, it, they, make, they make it really hard. And you're making it hard on yourself, but they make it really hard for you to, to kind of – you know, prosper. You know, it's it's really tough, man. And um, you know, I just I just tried to focus on, all right, how can I get out of this situation, right? Like, cause I've I've we've all been in situations where things get you know things get different, things get ugly, and I'm like, how can I get out of this situation? And my nickname back then was the Pope, cause everyone thought like I I think out things. I I sit there and I think and I think and I think. And I'd come up with this game plan for us, you know, whether it was for the good or for the bad. You know, so when I, w when I was doing what I was doing with the stolen cars, I never got caught because I always planned. I was meticulous with my plans. Now, my other friends, no plan. <laughs> going there, let's just do it. And, and, you know, most of them got locked up, and then now they're locked up. It changes their life. So when I'm talking to kids, I'm, I'm saying there's two roads. There's, there's, there's this fork in the road. You know, and there's all this good over here. And in the middle, it's like some good, some bad. But over here, it's like it's all good. And it, and it's hard to just go all good because that's what I had to do. Because that left my cousins, my friends. Like, I couldn't hang with them no more because they, they were doing things that I can't be a part of any longer because I wanted to go to college, you know. And once I got my first college letter in ninth grade, it just changed my life again. Like, you know, and it's actually from Jeff Van Gundy. The very first letter I got in my life was from Jeff Van Gundy. He's at Rutgers University, and I, I pinned it in my wall, pinned it up on my wall. I read it every single day, and that's 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 what started my workout. You know, and and it, it's it's important for for young kids to know that like if if 
if if you if the people you're hanging with or the people you're kind of following aren't doing right, you got to be strong enough to just go over here by yourself because that's what I had to do. It's, and it's hard. And you, some people might follow you, but you, most of my friends stayed over here, you know. And, and I, I think I made. I know I made the right decision because I know what I'm doing now today, and I know what they're doing today. Right. And I know I made the right decision. Right. Right. <laughs> well, much respect to you for being open and transparent. And I just want to say, keep doing what you're doing. You know, like I said, we have done numerous panel discussions together in Syracuse and in Harlem. And I have seen firsthand how you are inspiring young people with your story and your words of encouragement to them. So much respect to you. And thanks for coming on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. John Wallace. Etan, thank you, my brother. I really appreciate it, man. It's always good seeing you, baby. Always Always. good seeing you. Always. This program was written and produced by Carl Scott and myself with talent production by Lisa Phillips. Production assistance by Sean Cherry and John McDermott. Our engineer was Chris Basil. Our executive producers are Gary Honig, Jessica Robertson, Kevin Johnston, Ryan Duffy, Chris Corcoran, and Jamie Messler. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Thomas 36 And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes. Shoot me a message and let me know what you liked, what you didn't like, who'd you like to see on the show. I would love your feedback. ThePlayersTribute.com